Hi everyone, this is Deb from Dying to be Found. Before we get started, I just wanted to say that episodes contain disturbing discussions on harmful acts and crimes against animals and or humankind. Recordings are not intended for young or sensitive audiences due to the content nature of this podcast. Listener discretion is strongly advised. This is Deb. And this is Beth. And we want to welcome you to episode 15 of Dying to be Found. And this is a show that is left open to the interpretation of our listeners. If you have a story that you would like us to cover, please visit our website at dyingtobefound.com, spelled just like you see on our logo. Or you can email us at dying, the number two, the letter B, found at gmail.com. Beth, how are you today? I'm doing great. How about you? I'm doing great too. I'm excited to talk about this story. We're going to be talking about Elizabeth Smart today. She's the 14-year-old girl who beat the odds when she was abducted from her home in the middle of the night back in 2002. Do you remember the story, Beth? Very well, very well. And I followed it. So I'm very glad that you are, uh, you approached this story. And I'm very looking forward to listening to what you have to tell me. It looks like Beth, this is going to be a three parter. Wow, you must have found a lot of information. There is a ton of information. And I feel like I really need to do this justice for the family, for Elizabeth. Yes. So that's really all I know. If we get it into two parts, then I hope everybody can keep following along, but we'll see when we get there, I guess. All right. Okay. Anything else you want to talk about? Not today. I'm pretty quiet. Okay. We are going to jump in because there is a lot of information to talk about. And so let's just start. In 2002, the Smart family resided in Salt Lake City, Utah. Ed and Lois Smart were very busy keeping up with six children, Beth. Wow. I couldn't imagine. That is a lot. I go see our sister, Kathy, and she's got five kids and woo, you got to do that home alone and count the heads at all times. That's the best way I could keep up with the nieces and nephews. I know. I have to tell you something funny here, though. When I lived on Prince Edward Island, I worked with a girl. I might have mentioned this before. She was the oldest of 15. And her husband was the youngest of 16. Holy cow. Families were very big back then. Yeah, that's beautiful. I don't know what to say. That's I can't imagine even having six kids, let alone the amount that you just talked about. Wow. All right, let's talk about the smarts. Lois and Ed had four boys and two girls. They were Andrew, Elizabeth, Charles, Edward, Mary Catherine, and William Smart. Elizabeth was the second oldest child to Ed and Lois and was born on November 3rd, 1987. The Smarts were and still are active members of the Church of Jesus Christ and Latter-day Saints, also known as Mormons, and they resided in the Federal Heights suburbs of Salt Lake City, Utah. Well, 
Early summer of 2002, the Smart family was very busy attending to a family member's death. Lois's dad had just passed away, so she was dealing with that in addition to end-of-school events with her kids. And Elizabeth played the harp, so there were concerts along with other activities that her siblings were also involved in. So Lois recalls that on June 4th of 2002, she was cooking dinner. And of course, she had a lot on her mind. Her dad just passed away and she burnt some potatoes that were on the stove. Well, she cracked open a window in the kitchen to let the smoke out and didn't give it another thought. I mean, I know we've all done that. My fire alarm, for some reason in my house, just likes to go off anytime I turn on the oven. So I always open that back door to make sure that the the air's flowing and I don't get a lot of smoke in the kitchen. So how about you? We don't really have much smoke. Oh, that's good. You must be a better cook than me. Alal does most of the cooking. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to give a little timeline of events as we go along. On June 5th of 2002, when Elizabeth was 14 years old, she was abducted from her home in the middle of the night, like I had mentioned at the very beginning. Now, this happened to be the night that Elizabeth's mother cracked that window open in the kitchen because she burnt the potatoes. Elizabeth's sister, Mary Catherine, went to her parents' room somewhere between 2 a.m. and 2.30 in the morning to say that someone took Elizabeth. Mary Catherine and Elizabeth shared a room, so they were in close spaces, and Mary Catherine just witnessed the whole thing. Elizabeth's parents immediately got out of bed and began looking around the house. Lois turned on every light inside the house as they began searching. This is when they went to the kitchen and discovered that the window that Lois had opened earlier, well, the screen had been cut open. Wow. Yep. So the family and the neighborhood began looking for Elizabeth within 15 minutes of her disappearing. And during the search, two of Elizabeth's brothers, Ed Jr. and Andrew, were awakened by their mother's wailing and distress over Elizabeth going missing. I can only imagine how distraught she was, Beth. Oh, for sure. Oh my gosh. Can you imagine? No, not at all. But Elizabeth's younger sister, Mary Catherine, told her parents point blank, you're not going to find her. Someone took her. And so that's kind of what they went on when this whole ordeal started. So of course, the police were called. And when they arrived, they began asking Mary Catherine questions about what happened because she seemed to be the only eyewitness to the ordeal. Understandable. It's too clock in the morning. I don't, I think we've said this before. I'm a hard sleeper. You're a hard sleeper. Mm -hmm. I would not wake up to any of this. No. Detective Corey Lyman started looking around and found that the point of entry where the intruder came into the house was very high up on the ground. So the kitchen was overlooking the yard, but whoever entered, a couple things had to have happened. They had to have climbed up on something to enter the house. And in this instance, they found some chairs piled up at the bottom of that window just outside the kitchen. And the window only had a 12 inch opening so he really had to squeeze his way in whoever this person was oh my gosh mm -hmm. initially the smarts home was never sectioned off at all whatsoever by the police so it was not immediately treated as a crime scene 
this just means, Beth, that people in the neighborhood were coming and going because I just told you that the entire neighborhood was looking for Elizabeth within 15 minutes and family members, I'm sure, were called as well. So a lot of people were coming in and out and nothing was ever taped off to preserve the crime scene. So that was pretty much mistake number one. Mm-hmm. In the documentaries that I was watching, detectives stated that whoever worked the graveyard shift was usually assigned to the young and inexperienced law enforcement. So this may have been the case as to why the the house was not roped off with crime scene tape. So basically the entire house became contaminated beyond all hope. And according to crime scene investigators, they were not able to process the house like they should have when following normal protocols. So that was a huge mistake from the very beginning. Yes. Now, I had mentioned that Mary Catherine was questioned as an eyewitness Well, she was only nine years old at the time when Elizabeth was abducted. And again, Elizabeth was 14, so she was a few years older. Not only did she share that bedroom with Elizabeth, but they also shared a bed. Mary Catherine was the only witness to see what had happened, and she was able to account what the man said to Elizabeth while she was laying right next to her. The man was heard saying, if you scream, I'll shoot you. But if you don't, I won't harm you. It was really unclear as if this were directed towards Elizabeth or Mary Catherine. But that was just a direct quote coming from the abductor and what he had said when Mary Catherine was close by. At no point did Mary Catherine waver from her eyewitness statements the whole time that she was interviewed, even at the age of nine. So I'm trying to think back. What grade are you in? What are you really doing in your life? Are you really thinking about anything besides playing after school with your friends? I suppose it really depends on on what your activities are and all that. And of course, your intellectual level, I guess. Yes. Yep. So at age nine, Beth, she was very adamant of what she heard and what she saw. And she did not waver from any of that. Well, Mary Catherine mentioned that the voice of the intruder sounded very familiar. Now, this in itself sounds very familiar because we just covered a case exactly like this. Yes. But being nine years old, Mary Catherine could not place where she had heard it from. There are a couple things that I mentioned at the very beginning of the story. I kind of want to get back to Ed and Lois. Number one, I mentioned that the Smarts came from a very large family. Well, Ed had two brothers that he was very close to. Their names were Tom and Edward. Now, Tom had worked for a local news station in the past and was able to set up a news conference within hours of Elizabeth's abduction. The news media had picked up on the story very quickly, so Ed was able to get the news out that night. Tom even attempted to get Elizabeth's picture out into the news media and the internet, but he was told he had to wait three hours. 
Why? I guess that goes along the lines, Beth, of what we've talked about several times with how you have to wait that 24 hours Mm -hmm. because people are adults. They can always come back. But in the case of a minor, I'm not really sure why you would have to wait three hours, possibly because not speaking from experience, but there might have been a time or two that I have snuck out of the house in my life. (laughs) But I've always returned. Let's put it that way. I gotcha. Maybe that's why you had to wait the three hours because kids will be kids. They'll sneak out every now and then. Yes. Yeah. But one statistic that I pulled up that is a little disturbing with waiting that three hours is that 65% of fatalities like this occur within the first three hours. And again, that goes back to the story we just finished. So remember that Elizabeth originally went missing somewhere, I'm going to say 2.30 in the morning. Right. And the news crew arrived somewhere around 6.30 in the morning. That would be that three-hour window. It's important to know, too, that at this time, the Smart family had very little sleep to go on since this ordeal began. So they have been up since 2.30 in the morning looking through the neighborhood and just looking everywhere for Elizabeth at this point. And when the news media pulled up, you know, they're going to keep them up for hours because they're going to want to try to get as much information as possible, right? Yes, exactly. Yep. Now, I had mentioned that the crime scene had been contaminated beyond repair since the house had not been roped off with crime scene tape. And on June 6th, by 10 o'clock in the morning, this would be day two now, so a whole day has passed. At 10 o'clock in the morning on June 6th, search parties were already forming to sweep the area surrounding the Smarts' home. So many community members came forward to volunteer that they had somewhere between 1,800 and 2,000 actively looking in on the search just after this story broke. There were bikers, there were housewives, students, neighbors, everybody was joining in on this search for Elizabeth. And even CNN aired a story with Larry King Live about Elizabeth's abduction. So you know this story had to be getting a lot of coverage. You had just mentioned you followed it. I know I followed it. Yes. And there was just a ton of coverage. All family members were eventually taken to the police station in separate cars, including Lois, Mary Catherine, and her two brothers. Everyone continued to be separated once they arrived at the police station. I kind of figured, yeah, that makes sense because police officers know what they're doing. They're not going to keep family members all together because of innocent or not. I'm not saying anybody's innocent. I'm not saying anybody's guilty here, but innocent or not, you know, the police are going to separate everybody so that they can't get one story. Well, they, the police originally thought that something went down inside that house and all the family members were covering something up. That kind of sounds like the Jean Bonnet Ramsey case. So that's kind of the direction that the police were going. They didn't want the family members coming up with stories for each other just in case something was going on and they were trying to do a cover up. They theorized that the Smart family was concocting a ransom motive to get themselves out of debt. Now, in the research that I performed on this, 
I did not find one article stating that the smarts were in debt. I don't have anything in my notes that showed that they would have even tried to pursue that motive at all. Well, Eventually, the FBI was called in and they determined that Elizabeth was chosen by her abductor. According to an FBI profiler, Elizabeth did not have a high sequence of traits to place her into the category of being abducted. Let me give you an example here. So she's 14 years old, Beth. What do 14 year olds usually do? get together and in groups and hang out all, all over. Absolutely. I know I was doing that. I loved the roller rink when I was 14 years old. I was down there every weekend mm-hmm. hanging out with my friends. Yeah. But she didn't hang out at the mall. Now, internet was really becoming popular at this time. Remember, it's 2002. She didn't even frequent the internet chat rooms. She was a pretty well-balanced 14-year-old girl. She carried a strong faith. She enjoyed horses. And she played the harp. Gosh, Beth, that's an amazing talent to be 14 years old and be able to play the harp. Yeah, she sounds like she really has her head on her shoulders. Mm-hmm. So as the search continued, by day three, Ed was admitted to the hospital. He was exhausted to the point of collapse. He was going without sleep. I'm sure he had a ton of people that were coming to visit him. I had mentioned there were probably around 2,000 volunteers. So you know he had to have been interacting with a lot of people in that time span. Mm -hmm. Well, his bishop came to the hospital to give him a blessing and he basically told Ed that he needed to get up and do whatever he needed to do. So basically Ed went home, did what his bishop told him to do. He was taking care of business. He took control of the situation and his family members really stuck by him because as we go on you'll see how close and supportive everyone is of each other trying to find Elizabeth at all costs. Right. Yeah. Well, Ed and his two brothers, David and Tom, were brought in by the FBI to conduct polygraph tests just after five days with no sleep. I kind of want to dig into this portion just a little bit because, Beth, news got out to the media that one of the family members had failed their polygraph. Polygraphs, we know, are not admissible in court. We had talked about that very briefly in our last episode, and you were talking about how almost unfair it is to put people through these interrogations for hours upon end. Well, here's my thoughts on polygraphs. I know there are many people that know how to lie and get away with it. I've heard where you can bite your tongue, curl your toes, there are many ways of distorting the truth. So polygraphs don't always make sense in every situation. You're right. And in this situation, I have to agree with you on that because Tom said that he was hooked up to a polygraph machine for eight hours. Now, remember, Beth, that he had just gone five days without any sleep. Then he's hooked up to this polygraph, which lasted another eight hours. Mm Mm-hmm. And he himself said in one of the interviews that they were asking questions. I'm not going to say they're leading questions, Beth, but I can see how when somebody might be told that they're being deceptive and these are what, yes or no questions, 
Tom was being asked questions like, have you ever told a lie? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, Beth, have you ever told a lie? Oh, yes. Yeah. As have I. That is human nature to tell at least a white lie, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So let's talk about white lies for a moment. You have a habitual liar. You have little white lies. Okay. If they're going to ask a basic question like, have you ever lied? What are you supposed to say to that? Well, you want, you're torn because you want to say the truth, yet you want to lie. A little white lie. Yeah. Well, he didn't know how to answer that because just like you and me, Beth, we've told a lie and I mean, we can go in circles on this conversation. He did give an example. He told his wife one time that he didn't like her hair. <laughs> Beth, <laughs> have you ever been had anybody tell you that they didn't like your haircut? When I asked and I really insisted, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Now, what was your reaction? I didn't get ticked off, but I was shocked and hurt. I was very hurt. Okay. I'm going to say your mannerisms probably changed for a minute, wouldn't they? Yes. Absolutely. So adamantly, you're saying that your temperament changed. Okay. So Tom told his wife one day that he didn't like her hair. Well, Based on her temperament and her reaction, he basically said in the interview that he lied to her ever since. Yes, dear, your hair, it looks lovely today. Okay, little white lie, right? Yes. So we're getting back to this. Did, have you ever told a lie? How are you supposed to answer that when you're hooked up to a polygraph with no sleep? Exactly. That's that's the big question. Mm -hmm. And so that's a great example as to why polygraphs are inadmissible in court. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just basically how the question's worded that you can go in so many different directions. To me, I don't think that they set him up to come out as deceptive, but that's how it turned out based on how the question was worded. This goes back to what I mentioned in the last episode about how the suspect is grilled for hours and hours and then they'll end up breaking down and just telling the, the police whatever they want to hear just to get done and over with. Absolutely. Yes. Those false confessions. Yes. Yes, I completely agree with that. Well, Tom also stated that during this polygraph session, he basically had a two-hour stare down with the police officers because they were not providing any answers to him. And her, his thoughts were, well, whatever Elizabeth is going through right now, I'm going to go through this with her and I will do everything that it takes to get her home. So he's just basically... Staring at the police officers, not giving them answers because they weren't giving him answers. And that kind of went on for a little while. I'm sure that everybody was getting a little bit frustrated here. Yes. So in the meantime, the FBI also developed a profile on Elizabeth's abductor. I had mentioned that Elizabeth was chosen. Well, Special Agent Mick Fennerty profiled the abductor to have the following characteristics. First of all, they hypothesized that this was a sex crime because obviously she was taken in the middle of the night. And they also profiled the perpetrator as a white male between the age of 25 and 55. And then they also deduced that he was a burglar, obviously, with the way that he broke into the house. 
they compiled a list of any person who came to work at the Smarts House at any time, which consisted of over 60 contractors. I don't know if you've seen the house that they lived in, Beth, but it's beautiful and very large. It's kind of set within trees, but I can imagine that for the any work that needed to be done on that house, they would always have at least one or two contractors there because it was a pretty large house. Sounds nice. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the people on this list, his name was Richard Reese, and the Smarts considered him to always be friendly and engaging amongst the family members. Whenever he was on the premises, he would be cordial and chatty and anytime that he was working at their house. Well, Ed was not aware that Richard had a criminal record, nor was he aware of the fact that he would break into the house in the night while the smarts were sleeping. So he was nice and cordial during the day, but he was known to break into their house to steal things while they were sleeping. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. Well, Mary Catherine, Elizabeth's sister, had seen Richard on the news and questioned why he was on TV because he was a nice guy. She actually told her parents, though, that it was not Richard who took Elizabeth. Hmm. Reese's wife also provided him with a solid alibi and, Beth, he passed a polygraph test. Now, the police identified Reese as a career criminal, but in fact, he was in jail at the time that he was identified as the main suspect of Elizabeth's disappearance. Reese had a criminal record of burglary and had even attempted to kill a police officer during a pharmacy robbery at some point. So police began to question Mary Catherine's ability to even be an eyewitness because she could not make a direct connection to Richard Reese from the night that Elizabeth disappeared. So it sounds to me like they wanted Reese to be the one, right? Right. Scapegoat again. Mm, there you go. Well, on August 3rd of 2002, Reese suffered a medical emergency and possibly a brain aneurysm while he was in police custody because, Beth, if you have seen any of the videos of his police interrogations, to me, I did not feel like he would have been involved in this. He was very adamant that he was innocent. He went nowhere near that girl and he was just visibly getting upset just from the police questioning him and he's maintaining his innocence so he did suffer a medical emergency and police just continued to keep him as their prime suspect even though the entire time while he was being interrogated he never once said that he did anything to Elizabeth. Well Richard ended up being placed on life support and died three days later. That's sad. Yeah. Well, the sadder part is that the police would not let Richard's wife see him while he was in the hospital because they did end up admitting that Reese just wasn't smart enough to pull anything like that off. Oh, that's too bad. Mm-hmm. Well, during the same month, in August of 2002, just eight weeks after Elizabeth disappeared, someone ended up breaking into her cousin's house at 2.30 in the morning, Beth. That is really eerie. Exact same time. Mm-hmm. And related to Elizabeth. Yes. 
Well, Elizabeth's uncle, Stephen Wright, heard a loud crash that night. And when the police got there, they had found two chairs piled up back to back, just like they saw over at Elizabeth's house when she was abducted. No. Yep. And the police felt that because of the situation, it had to be a copycat. Well, it doesn't have to be a copycat. I mean, we're talking about the same family, and I don't think it's a copycat. Do you think it's too much of a coincidence, though? Yes, that I do. Well, the police thought it was a copycat, but the family believed that it was the same person that broke in to take Elizabeth. And I can understand that for sure. Yeah, that's what I would I would guess, too. Mm-hmm. All right, so we are rolling up to day 90 in September of 2002. Police continue to follow hundreds of leads, including motorcycle gangs, white-collar crime, psychic leads, devil worshippers, sex crimes, internet predators, and all of these leads added up to about 150 per hour. Wow. So 90 days in Beth, they had over 39,000 leads that they had to follow with how big was the police force in Salt Lake City, Utah. Yeah, that's a great number, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I don't know if they brought the 2,000 volunteers in to help them with this, but I'm sure they could only do so much. Right. Can we talk about psychic leads for a moment? I would love to, yeah. Uh, what, are, what are your thoughts on psychic I believe, Beth, to a certain extent that people have that, would would you call it a sixth sense? I don't think it's a sixth sense. I'm a full believer. I did see a psychic and when it was shortly after dad passed away and I wanted to know if he was around, but without saying anything, she said, well, right now there's a man here and he's rubbing his head. Wow. And I thought to myself, oh my gosh. Or as my dad would say, good golly, good golly. Because my father did have a bald head and he had a habit of putting his hand on his head and rubbing his head. Oh my gosh. And he said through the medium that he was sorry that he didn't have enough money for us girls. He knew we were all in need at the time. Oh. And I felt bad for that. And, uh, but it was a very interesting experience. Well, I would be interested in going one day. That would be kind of one of those things. You know, you see the sign for these people and then do you ever really stop? I go to ones that are reputable. This one lady, the reason I went to her because she had a office right on the downtown strip. And if she was paying for an office and if she was there for her regulars, you know she had to be good. Yeah, you're right. You have a point. I'll have to check that out one time. Mm-hmm. I've never done it. All right. So we're going to get to the eyewitness encounters. Not long after all of these leads started coming in, one of the smarts neighbors was out on a bike trail in some woods just behind the neighborhood. I had mentioned a couple minutes ago that the smarts house was surrounded in trees. And so they had a bike trail that kind of ran around the neighborhood. And I feel like it was an area that a lot of people could go hiking or biking into the woods. Mm -hmm. Now, 
Mike saw a man come out of the woods at some point in time. This was 90 days later after Elizabeth's abduction. He had seen a man come out of the woods with two women trailing him. In the future, as we talk about the people that came out in the woods, I'm actually going to say the trio because there were three people. I just want to kind of set that up. And they were seen pretty frequently amongst eyewitnesses around town on any given day from that day forward. The trio was always wearing full robes. And the man had a very bushy beard while the women were wearing veils over their faces. Not something that you normally see every day on the streets. Another eyewitness saw the same man who he dubbed as Joseph just walking around town with the two women that wore the veils. At some point, this eyewitness made eye contact with the younger of the two women, and all he could say when he saw her was that her eyes looked very sad. A third eyewitness saw the same trio out at a buffet-style restaurant one night, and I guess at some point, obviously, if they're going to be eating dinner, they had to lift their veils. Well, this eyewitness stated that the younger female had to be a teenager. I am not sure at this point in time how much news coverage this story is getting. I mean, it's been out there for 90 days now, but it's just something that maybe people don't think about absolutely every day. And maybe the sightings of these individuals, people weren't quite connecting the dots yet. On October 12th, just four months after Elizabeth's abductions, authorities started to give up hope that they would ever see Elizabeth alive because there has been no activity. Um, they were not able to ever really make any clear-cut case on this. But, but that same day, Elizabeth's sister, Mary Catherine, had come to her dad with an epitome that she believed that she knew who the kidnapper was. So, wow, yeah, she's just doing her thing, being a typical nine-year-old girl, and she all of a sudden had a memory. So she was just reading a book when the memory of this man just took over and she's like, oh, I know who it is. Hmm. So she came to Ed and told him, dad, the name of the man that took Elizabeth, his name is Emmanuel. Well, Emmanuel was a homeless preacher that the smarts had hired for handiwork around the house just a few months earlier. Mary Catherine specifically told her dad, Dad, it was that man that came to help on the roof. It was that homeless man from downtown. So I kind of want to back this up because Catherine approaches her dad four months after Elizabeth's abduction because she just had this memory and backing up to Thanksgiving week of 2001, that was somewhere around six and a half months before Elizabeth was abducted. I kind of want to tell you this little story for just a minute because then it's going to all add up. Well, I had told you that Lois and Ed had six kids, right? Right. 
So they were out shopping one day. They were downtown in the Salt Lake area. They were basically doing their thing, shopping for school clothes. And since the kids had so many different interests going on, well, Lois let the boys go pick out some clothes on their own in one area of the mall that they had gone to. And she just stayed with the girls. One of Elizabeth's brothers came back and told their mother that there was a man asking about work. So apparently they crossed paths when they separated, right? Right. Lois ended up making contact with this guy and gave him $5 in this conversation. Well, she mentioned that they did need some work done at their house. So she went home to talk to Ed about it. And Lois had asked the guy's name when she was leaving town and he had mentioned that his name was Emmanuel. Ed stated that both Mary Catherine and Elizabeth had probably five minutes interaction with Emmanuel one day when he did end up coming to the house to help work on the roof. So they probably came in off the school bus, headed up to do their thing in their room and probably made contact with this guy, Emmanuel, for a total of five minutes, Beth. Wow, only five. Yep, and Ed had said that he had given Emmanuel several days work, but he only showed up that very first day and did not return after that. But in the span of time, though, you have to know that Emmanuel was probably inside the house, maybe taking a look around. And of course, then at that point, he may have known where all the windows and doors were. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Now, Mary Catherine was interviewed again, where she told the police that she had seen Emmanuel out in the streets, just as several eyewitnesses had already said the same thing. So while they were out and about, she saw him out in the streets, a street preacher. And she also thought that Emmanuel saw her and Elizabeth going up to their room the day that he had come to their house. So police took all this information with a grain of salt because remember I had told you that their number one suspect was Richard Reese. They continued to be skeptical of Mary Catherine one because of her age and two she was not following the line of who they thought the suspect was and Emmanuel was not even on their list of subcontractors or contractors that had come to the smarts house how could that be i don't know that's a great question i mean if he was a homeless man maybe it wasn't as easy to follow up with him like it was the other contractors Mm. in the meantime mary catherine said that she only thought he might be the voice behind who took elizabeth so the police are not really going with what Mary Catherine has to say. And she's just thinking that he might be that voice. Well, I mean, if you have an epitome, then I don't know. I I feel like they kind of brushed her off a little too quickly. Well, police told Ed not to go public with this information. Even if it did generate leads, they felt like if they made Emmanuel public, then of course he's going to flee or at least go underground. Because remember he's been spotted as a trio all over town at this point with two women 
Mm -hmm. So he's freely walking around and nobody's thinking twice. I mean, they're looking at this odd trio and how they consider people should be dressed. Well, anything going on the news at that point, then that might scare him off. The smart family, however, didn't really like that idea that the police had asked them not to go public. Beth, again, this seems to be a trend because just in our last episode, the police told the family not to go public. Exactly. Yeah. Well, guess what? They did. Just like our last story, the smarts went public because they were not comfortable with the police's demeanor and decided that they were going to, in their way, they decided that they were going to pursue this street preacher on their own. And that's pretty much where we're going to end this, Beth. I am very anxious to hear the continuation. <laughs> there is a lot of information going on in this case. I just really felt like I needed to give it justice. I wanted to talk first about the smart family and what they were going through in the first several months of Elizabeth's disappearance, because next week we're actually going to dig a little bit further into that man named Emmanuel. Oh, I'm very intrigued and I'm going to be very interested to hear all about this Emmanuel. Mm -hmm. Was that a good stopping point. Yeah, you know what? I think it's because I didn't read this ahead of time. I was very intrigued. I mean, I'm always intrigued, but everything became as a surprise to me because it's been so many years. Okay. So this was a good one. Mm-hmm. Good. Hey, teachable moment. Okay. Go ahead and ask me. So Deb, what's our teachable moment for this week? <laughs> okay. Teachable moment. You know, Regardless on how old we are, Beth, we all have our own memories. I think that we just need to give kids a little bit more credit than what we do. Always that when we were growing up, we always had that be seen and not heard. Well, in today's age, especially with the storylines that we talk about every week, Beth, I think it's pretty important that we do listen to the children. We do need to take the information. When a child has enough courage to approach an adult with any type of information, especially this type, you know, we are trusted adults. We teach our kids to trust adults. So we need to respect the fact that they're taking the courage to come forward. Yes, I think that children should be understood and uh, listened to more than they are. Absolutely. So I think that's my teachable moment for the week is that we need to let the voices be heard. Okay. Well, with that being said, thanks for listening to our podcast, Dying to be Found. And before we go, we would love for you to leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. Beth and I are trying to deliver you the stories that we believe that you can relate to. So if you like our show, consider buying us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash dying to be found spelled just like you see it on our logo and feel free to leave a comment on that page so that we know what we can do better and also be sure to follow us on instagram twitter facebook and pinterest at dying the number two the letter b found and we will talk to you next thursday and that's a wrap that is a wrap toodaloo toodaloo <laughs> I'm leaving that in just so you know, because that was so freaking cute. <laughs> <laughs>